morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Becky Chambers, Hugo Award-winning author of the Wayfarer series. Becky's latest book is a science fiction novella, To Be Taught If Fortunate. I met Becky at this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors, where we had some great conversations, and I'm thrilled that I get to have another one. Becky, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you so much, Charlie. I'm really happy to be here. You write science fiction, but you work very hard, and it shows in your work to get the science part of that right. And one way you do that is you have a consultant that you work with who is a scientist. Can you tell us a little bit about that person and what your relationship with that person is like? I absolutely can. Uh, my primary science consultant is my mom. Uh, my mom, uh, Nicolene Chambers, she is an astrobiology educator. Um, I have obviously known her my whole life. And uh, <laughs> um, she, you know, she really, it's hard to grow up in that environment and not absorb a love of science through osmosis. You know, she definitely allowed me to choose my own path and go wherever I was going to go. But, um, she, she cares so deeply about her work. And I think there's the, I couldn't help, but, but, you know, just soak that up, um, you know, growing up with her. Um, so she's, uh, she's my go-to whenever I have science questions, you know, if, if she doesn't know, she knows who to talk to. She's got an amazing network of, you know, scientists and other educators who she can put me in touch with. Um, and for this book in particular, because it is focused so heavily on, on astrobiology, well, biology in general, you know, on the, the ecological study of, of other worlds. Um, she was a massive help in, um, making sure that, you know, I had all my lab equipment, right. And that I, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, using this term when I should have used that or whatever. Um, she's very patient with my, my late night emails about, you know, whether or not I've got gravity wrong or something. I mean, that's really great to have somebody who, you know, obviously, somebody that you can go to ask those questions, but somebody who also knows you, uh, in such a personal way, that must be, that must be a nice, um, sort of extra part of your relationship. Definitely. I mean, we're, we're very good friends, you know, aside yeah. from being, uh, you know, family, but, um, yeah, it's, it's actually a lot of fun for us because, you know, both of our careers are born out of a love for science, but we're doing it in very different ways. You know, both of us are trying to communicate a love of the universe to, to, you know, my audience and her students. Um, but we go about it differently. And so it's fun to compare notes as it were. So I will admit this was, I love this book. It was the first science fiction book I'd read in a long time. Not, I hadn't been consciously avoiding science fiction. I just happened to be reading other things, but I do run into other people. And I think particularly of my father-in-law who, who just say, whether it's of books or of movies, Oh, I, I don't do science fiction. How do you convince somebody who, who thinks that they don't do science fiction to, to read this book or to read any work of science fiction? Um, I, 
how to say this without sounding like I'm patting myself on the back too much. <laughs> Honestly, I'd hand them one of my books because the the my, one of my big goals with both this book and with my Wayfarer series is I want to convert you to science fiction. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I will mm-hmm. be upfront about that. Science fiction does have this stigma of being difficult to get into, and it, it, it's true in a lot of ways. You know, there is this perception that um, in order to read sci-fi, you already have to be good at science, right? You already have to have a background in science or engineering or physics or what have you. Um, and you see that in a, in a lot of stuff out there, you know, where there are a lot of books that I've read and I'm not going to name names, but like books that I've read and loved, but where it's definitely not an entry level book, right. you know, where it's the sort of thing you're reading if you're already reading science fiction. And so I think that perception of the genre can be off-putting to people. And I, I think that that's unfortunate and something we should fix because what's the point of telling these stories if we're only preaching to the choir, you know, if the only people you're talking to about science, um, and sharing a love of science with are people who already love science, who have already, you know, jumped on that bandwagon, there's, there's no point, um, at least not in my book. So I, I, uh, no pun intended, but, um, I, uh, yeah, I try very hard with my work to make it accessible to people, even if you're not, you know, if you're not a regular science fiction reader and if you're not, um, if you don't have a science background, right. you know, right. I, I, I try to make sure that there's enough for both sides of the audience. You know, I want the people who are, you know, more, I don't know, <laughs> grizzled veteran science, science fiction readers to find something they can dig their teeth into. But if this is the first sci-fi book you've ever picked up, I don't want you to feel lost and I don't want you to feel, um, you know, like this isn't for you. I want to make sure that there's a place at the table for everybody. Well, speaking of somebody whose science background is, you know, a couple of classes in high school a long time ago and then watching The Big Bang Theory, I think I can say that that you succeeded. This is one of those books that does one of my favorite things that that a book can do. It actually makes the reader feel smarter. Um, rather than, like you said, some some non-entry level science fiction might make the reader feel not smart. This one, this one makes you feel smart. I just, I love the way that works. Um, and let's talk about the opening for a minute because I think you do a couple of things in the opening that actually do invite um, the reader in in a in an intimate way. Uh, and one of those things is the very first page of the novel is is there's only three words on it in great big type. It says please read this. Um, how, how did you approach the opening in terms of thinking about that being, you know, an invitation for, for readers in general, but also especially, like we said, for, for uh, maybe reluctant science fiction readers uh, to be invited into that text? I, I thought a lot about how to open it. You know, this book went through a lot of different iterations before it, it uh, turned into the version that, that you have read um, and that other folks will read. And it, I'm trying to tread carefully around this question because I um, addressed the opening in its final form after I wrote the ending. So I need to <laughs> think <laughs> a little bit about how to do this without spoiling things. Right. But I mean, ultimately, I wanted to set up the premise, right? I mean, the book is written in the style of sort of a memoir of sorts, but it really is directly addressing the reader and is directly asking the reader a question. You know, this isn't the, the, um, you know, the, the whole sort of setup of the book is that it's this, you know, it's this message that's been sent to earth and you happen to be the one who, who's reading it. And, um, 
So I wanted to, first of all, you know, within that narrative context, make sure that it didn't just get, you know, shuffled to the side with all the other lab report or data reports. You know, this is, this is something that needs to be read now. Um, but also to explain to the reader what it is, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. explain to the reader that this isn't just a technical document. This isn't just, um, you know, the latest uh, dispatch back to mission control. This is something that we, the crew, need to ask the people of Earth, and you, as a person of Earth, are as good as anyone. Um, and so, I, I just, I that that was the that was, you know, the, the, the prologue, if you will, you know, that, that sort of, you know, Shakespearean thing of getting up on stage and and saying, all right, here's how it's all going to go. And now we're going to do that. You know, I, and I also wanted to make it very clear that, that there is a question being asked that this is not something, um, intended for you to just kind of sit back and absorb, like you ideally are a participant in this. And I didn't want to spring that on the reader late in the book where all of a sudden they realize like, Oh, I, I, you know, they're asking me, me personally, you know, I wanted, I I wanted that to be clear from the get go. And one of the ways you do that, I was talking to another writer who did this recently in a prologue, um, is you use the second person in, in the prologue, which we don't see a lot in, in narrative fiction, but I think it works really well here. First of all, because you're not trying to push it all the way through the whole book. We're just, it's mm-hmm. just a few pages. Um, right. Did you, did you originally write that in the second person? Did you play around with different ways of doing it? I played around with different ways of doing it um, because it was really alien to me <laughs> to do so. Yeah. Um, even, even the rest of the book, you know, which is in first person, um, all my other stuff has been in third. So, and that comes more naturally to me. Um, but when I first sat down and started writing this, it just sort of, came out naturally that way. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. I, you know, I, I can't say why, you know, I can't say here was my grand plan for using, you know, this specific point of view. Um, it just seemed to fit the story best. It just, you know, after I tinkered with a couple different versions, it was like, oh, okay, there it is. Um, one of those, um, inexplicable writing things that just makes sense as soon as you do it. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, be bought, to be taught if fortunate is, I, I felt, is such a beautifully book, and, and it's a deceptively simple premise in many ways, um, but it provides this platform for exploring these existential questions. Tell us the basic premise of the book. What What is the first-person narrator telling us about? Sure. So this is written from the point of view of an astronaut um, aboard a, a spacecraft. It's a four-person crew, and they are conducting an ecological survey of an exoplanetary system 14 light years from Earth. This is not a mission of um, conquest. This is not a mission of we have to find another home for ourselves because, you know, Earth has died or what have you. Um, this It's pure exploration. It is purely, you know, going boldly to, to see what's out there. Um, now, the trick of that is, is they're very far from home. They're very isolated. And, you know, there's a lot of time that's passing in between, you know, as they're out there on their journey. They go into a, you know, a sort of... Um, artificial torpor in between worlds because it takes a long time to get there. So, you know, the, the, the world they've left behind is changing, you know, earth is changing without them. And, and there is this overarching question of, you know, what is our mission still? You know, if earth has changed, who are we doing this for? What exactly 
does earth want of us? Um, and, and how do we, how do we fit the work with what we're doing? You know, the work that we're doing here with what's going on back at home. Um, so yeah, in some ways it's very simple. It is just, you know, these four scientists out there doing what they do best. Um, but there is this larger question of, of how they fit into, um, you know, the, the context of, of, the humanity they've left behind. Yeah. And I love the way you sort of balance those two things as you go along these, these, um, futuristic, if you will, um, scientific means of doing things, um, that are, that are very sort of nuts and bolts and are really fun to kind of dig into as a reader. And then, you know, with these larger questions, always kind of underpinning everything. I love the, your use of the word elegant when you apply it to science or mathematics and you you call you invent something called somaforming which is an elegant solution to the problems of deep space travel tell us a little bit about what that is and and what led you to invent that Sure. Well, I should start by saying it's not purely my invention. So, oh, cool. uh, somo- yeah. So, uh, somaforming. Well, that's my that's my word. But um, the it, it's essentially genetic engineering to allow the human body to survive. Um, the challenging environment of of living in outer space. Living in outer space is a really tough thing on the human body. You know, even our astronauts today, they go up for six months or more and you start to see changes. Um, And it's one of the biggest challenges facing human spaceflight right now is how do we keep people alive, um, you know, in the time it takes to go to Mars or or beyond. Um, And somaforming is this idea that instead of changing, instead of inventing technology that will do that for you, you know, a, a spacecraft and a spacesuit that will protect you from, from the, the challenges of space, uh, why not change your body? instead? Would it not be simpler to simply change our physiology just a little bit? Not too much. You know, we're not talking about creating a new species here. We're not talking about some sort of, you know, uh, you know, transhuman, uh, transformation, just a little tweak, just a little adjustment to make it easier for you to say, survive an extreme cold or, um, you know, make you give you a a natural defense against radiation, maybe even put that radiation to work for you. Um, so that idea is not mine. Um, that comes from a, a scientist who I had the good fortune of meeting uh, at a conference last year. Uh, her name is Lisa Nip, and she is a PhD candidate at MIT Media Lab. And she and I were both at the uh, Mellon Science Fiction Conference in Hong Kong. And she presented a talk on this idea, and it blew my mind yeah. wide open. <laughs> well, I thought what was so beautiful about it, or just so radical about it, really, is you know, genetic engineering is is one of the uh, you know classic staples of science fiction, right? But it's usually pre- presented in a horrific or monstrous sort of way. Right. So something know, goes horribly wrong. The island of Dr. Right, Moreau, exactly. Or, something yeah, goes yeah. horribly wrong or you have a sort of like brave new world eugenics sort of situation. Right, right. You know, it's, it's rarely done for something good. Or if it is seen as a positive, it's usually because we have to do it in order to survive, right? Like um, something like, say, um, Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic series. Um, but, you know, the humans have to leave the, the the physicality of of what it means to be human behind if they want to survive. And I thought Lisa's idea was just so simple. It's it's none of that. It's just what if we just just change ourselves just a little bit just to so we can push ourselves further out there. And I thought that was a fantastic idea and one I hadn't really seen 
in science fiction. And so um, I actually uh, consulted with her during the early stages of this book. She was kind enough to uh, get on Skype with me from her lab, which was super cool. And, uh, you know, I, I, we just, you know, did sort of a deep dive. I mean, this is definitely not my field. So I, I just said, you know, here to walk me through it, like I'm five years old, give me all the right words and, and we'll go from there. So um, it, I was very lucky to have her as a resource and to have met her because I don't think the book would have existed without that idea uh, at the start. I mean, I love the the way that you really take on the real life challenges of a mission like this because a lot lot of science fiction ignores things like cosmic radiation or, um, you know, sending messages over multiple light years, that sort of thing. The soma forming um, the Tiva suits, these are, to use this word again, elegant solutions to problems that, that some sci-fi writers, I think, kind of just try to skirt around. How often do you find yourself stopping and going, okay, wait a minute, if this is going to be really real, I have to solve this problem? With this book a lot. Um, this one is very different from my Wayfarer series in that my Wayfarer series, I keep grounded in you know the laws of nature but I take a lot of leaps. I don't talk about radiation in that series. And, you know, we have things like artificial gravity and messages that can travel instantly. These things that seem magical to us that could technologically be possible, but we have no idea. Um, knowing that I wanted to keep this book, um, closer to home in terms of what we're actually technologically capable of, you know, this book is supposed to be just, you know, a hundred or so years from now. So I was really grounding it in what, in what we can do today and where we might be able to take that in a century. Um, so there were a lot of times where I'd have to stop and think and, you know, where I'd I'd run myself into the, (laughs) into the hull as it were and be like, okay. But there also reaches a point where you do have to let some things go. And that's just, that's just a matter of, um, that's just a matter of storytelling, right? Like you can't explain everything. I don't explain, for example, how, um, the propulsion on the ship works or things like that, because ultimately it's not relevant to the story and it's also a novella. So there, you know, there's only so much you can cram in there. Um, and so I think that's, that's just one of the, the key skills in writing science fiction is, um, first of all, deciding what level of realism you're going for, because that changes the flavor a lot, and then deciding which details are actually necessary, which details are readers going to get hung up on, and which can you safely let go. Right, right. Um, I love that you compare at one point the isolation of deep space travel uh, to boarding school. Maybe this is just because I did go to boarding school and sometimes felt isolated there. Um, but can you talk about the the challenge of of finding those metaphors, finding the way to help a 21st century reader relate to experiences that no human being has ever had? Well, I think, you know, it's that whole, that that old saying about write what you know, right? Which on the surface doesn't really apply to a science fiction writer, (laughs) but it actually really does. You know, I, I don't know what it's like to be in a spacecraft, you know, or, you know, to be, you know, light years away from planet earth. But I do know what it's like to feel lonely. I do know what it's like to feel isolated. Everyone does, you know? So I think 
finding those commonalities of saying, okay, loneliness, for example, what, where are some, you know, some real world places I can draw from? What are some comparisons I can make there? Um, that's both helpful to me as a writer, you know, in knowing what to draw from in my own life. Um, but also helpful for the reader because, you know, the reader also presumably has not been 14 light years away from earth, but I'm going to, I'm going to make this new experience that feels, um, like something that you can relate to, you know, and, and that's just, that's just part of the fun really is just sort of, um, stretching your brain and finding the, the commonalities, you know, between right. a, a normal experience and, and a fantastic one. Mm-hmm. Your, your hero, um, Ariadne, the, the narrator of the novel, um, at one point she's talking about what, how she perceived the world when she was four years old. And there's this great quote. She says, it's difficult to assign value to a discovery when you haven't sorted out the paradoxes of reality yet. Do you think that that, in a way, uh, could apply almost to all scientific inquiry and not just the inquiry of a four-year-old child? Oh, that's wonderful. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Retroactively, yes. Um, yeah, because that's the thing, right? We're, we're constantly blowing our own minds in science, you know, something that may seem very trivial to us now, let's say, um, germ theory, germ theory, right? Like that it's something we just take for granted that you need to wash your hands and that we're covered in bacteria and stuff. It's just obvious that that's a thing. But a hundred years ago, that was, you know, controversial. Yeah. yeah, Super controversial. Yeah. yeah, Um, so yeah, I think in some ways we are always children and we're all always, you know, learning and, and redefining our, our realities. That's what makes science so wonderful is that, um, you know, we, it, it, it challenges us. It, it makes us push at the edges a bit. And I think that's what can make it uncomfortable yeah. for people as well. You know, you want to be able to say, I oh, yes, I've reached adulthood. I've, I've learned all the things, you know, and, and that's it. That's how reality works. And it's why we all kind of freak out when we, you know, when there is a great big discovery that reveals, no, that's not how it works at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it makes us little kids again, um, which is both scary and exciting, you know, as childhood was. I, I do remember my high school physics teacher telling us, you know, well, uh, we used to think, you know, this medieval man thought that, that the world worked like this, and then Newton came along and said, no, it works like this. And then Einstein came along and said, no, it works like this. And then he kind of got this little smile on his face, and he said, so we know that's how it works now. And, of course, yeah. we immediately all went, but you know, what about the next guy? You know, Which is right. exactly the reaction he was trying to provoke from us. But um, I, I love this idea that the um, the suits that Ariadne and her shipmates use when they go out onto these um, exoplanets are – not so much to protect them as to protect whatever life might be on that planet. And it's something I've heard talked about recently with regard to these proposed excursions to Mars. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the morality of introducing a Terran species into another planet's ecosystem? Absolutely. I mean, that is a huge real world uh, topic of conversation within the space science community right now. You know, um, NASA has a planetary protection office and they're talking both about protecting our planet, but also protecting other planets. You know, you can look at things such as uh, the Cassini mission, which ended, you know, I think last year. And, um, you know, it's this probe that was out there orbiting Saturn. And there are moons around Saturn that could potentially harbor life. You know, they've got some of the right ingredients. um, They've got 
environments that could be conducive to it. And so rather than risk crashing a spacecraft, which is, you know, laden with bacteria, despite our best efforts, um, you know, instead of risking it crashing into, you know, a potential ocean full of critters, they intentionally flew the spacecraft into Saturn and destroyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, to make sure that, you know, that contamination didn't happen. So, yeah, I mean, there there is a real moral concern there, a real ethical concern of, you know, um, yeah, we're curious and we want to know what's out there, but, you know, we also can't, um, we can't risk the lives of, of the things we want to go see. Right. You know, we've done enough damage on our own planet that way of, of barging into ecosystems we don't understand and, and, and you know, causing... Um, causing havoc that way, you know, so it's, it's something, something that I know, um, real world scientists put a lot of thought into. Um, and it's, it's certainly, um, you know, a component of the argument of should we go at all? You know, do we have the right to go out there and potentially introduce something, um, into something else's home, you know? And that's a, that's a good question. It's a fair question. But you also point out that any, I think I think Ariadne says in these words is any movement creates waves, um, and you sort of make us confront this moral quandary that if we carry that mantra of first do no harm to its logical conclusion, then we'll never do anything. Right. Um, so it, I mean, in today's science, I mean, we've talked, you've mentioned this a little bit already, but how, how do you think we balance inquiry with the with the desire to to do no harm? I think you have to put the desire to do no harm first. I think that has to be your first concern before you, you know, because otherwise you're bending, you know, if, if you say, okay, we're going to do this thing. Now, how can we, you know, we're going to do this thing regardless. How can we do so without hurting anything? Then you're sort of, you know, you're, you're, you're bending the morality around the project. Right. But I think if you first ask the question, can we even do this in a way that's ethical? Can, is it even possible to do this? Um, in a in a way in which we can guarantee you know a minimal risk of harm because there always will be some risk no matter yeah. what you do yeah. um, and then and then I think you have to have a conversation about is the risk worth it what's the worst thing that could happen you know you really have to ask that question what's the absolute worst thing that could happen okay if that happens is it worth whatever we gained about from this right. and you know I think that that ultimately is one of the core questions of the book and it's one I want to leave the reader with um, because I don't think there is one good answer to that. You know, it's a thorny question. Um, and it's, but it's one we definitely have to answer, uh, particularly in space science, especially with, you know, all the, you know, the, the advent of, of private space flight and all the new companies that are right, going out. Right. Like these are the questions we have to be asking now, um, before things get out of control. Yeah. I, I love your honesty about so many things in this book, but one of the things that you're very honest about um, is just the tedium of scientific inquiry, that a lot of times it's just looking at 4,000 slides or 8 million <laughs> photographs. Um, and yet, even though you admit that scientific inquiry can be tedious and you show it being tedious, you still make it exciting to read about. So how did you pull that off? <laughs> Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that I did. Um, <laughs> I, I think it just, I think it just comes out of my personal admiration for, for scientists and what they do. You know, everybody loves to look at the, the finished products, right? Like the, the, the super polished Hubble pictures or, you know, the, here's the cool discovery that we found out about, I don't know, plants or bees or whatever, but we 
tend to gloss over the the years and years of just looking at slides and looking at photos over and over and over again. It is incredibly boring, and I have just a, a wealth of respect for the people who have um, not just the patience but the passion to be able to do that. You know, the 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 absolute. Um, love for your field that you have to have to go out there every day into, you know, into your duck blind or into your lab or into your boat or whatever it is and look at the same thing over and over again, because you just have to answer that question. Um, I find it beautiful and I find it incredible. And, um, it's something I, I wanted to, to really celebrate in this because it's not a skill I possess. I could not do it. And I know I could not do it. Um, and so if I knew that if I was going to write a love letter to science, it had to show that it had to show, you know, this is, this is the, the level of work that goes into, you know, a discovery that only takes two lines to explain. But I think also it's a great example of human passion and about how we, we are all passionate about different things. And when you're doing the thing that you're passionate about, even though it might seem boring to somebody else, it's not boring to you. And I'm sure there are probably some of those scientists who would say, oh, my gosh, I could never sit down and write a science fiction novel. I don't, I don't have the patience for it. You know? Yeah. Uh, there's an interesting linguistic challenge that you have in describing exoplanetary exploration, which you point out in the book, and that is simply that the languages of Earth were created in order to describe the things of Earth. How do you deal with that challenge in writing about uh, planets that are very much not Earth? Well, I think I, I do it exactly as I did in the book, which is I cheat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I very much underline the fact that I'm cheating because, yeah, you, you in describing, well, actually, I mean, the that scene you're describing it, where Ariadne is stepping out onto this beautiful planet in which you have all of these see, I can't even describe it. Plants. They're not actually plants, but we would see them as plants. You know, it's incredible lush landscape. And I sat there as a writer trying to describe it. And then every time I hit a word like plant or bird or flower, I was like, that's not, that's not what it is though. We don't, it's something other than what we have here. And so I, that paragraph in there where she's explaining that when I say, you know, plant or flower or bird, I don't actually mean that, but that's just the closest thing I have to compare it to. Um, that's very much me <laughs> stepping in for a minute to say, Hey, you know, um, my language is failing me a bit here. Uh, so we're just, we're just going to have to work with what we've got. But I think it's it's remarkable that although the language fails you, your imagination doesn't. You you Becky are imagining what these things are, even if we don't have the language to express it. And I and I find so often in science fiction, uh, it not, and not just you know when in Star Trek episodes where they always land on the same piece of desert outside Bakersfield, you know. <laughs> um, but but we tend to have you know humanoid creatures that we're interacting with and and landscape that looks like some part of earth. Uh, and I, and I love the fact that you, you really made that effort to, even if it's hard to describe, to imagine something unearthly. Yeah, I, that was a big, a big focus for me with this book because all of it, I, I wanted to feel as real as possible. And the reality of it is that we are probably not going to find, you know, other two leg, two armed, one faced creatures out there, you know, whatever life we found out that out there is going to be so dramatically different from what we're used to. Um, and I really wanted to capture that. I think especially because 
because of my Wayfarer series, which is very much born out of the tradition of Star Trek and Star Wars in which you have um, aliens that are not entirely humanoid, but close enough that they're easy to relate to. You know, they're people and you can talk to them as people. Um, In this book, I wanted to say, okay, well, here's what I really think. You know, here's like, that's a, that's, you know, I love that universe and, you know, it's a, obviously, you know, I'm biased, but it's a very fun sandbox to play in. But I wanted to, you know, take a break from that for a bit and say, well, here's what I, here's what I think the universe is actually like. Here's what I think our universe is like. Um, So I, I really wanted to, um, focus hard on that in this book in making things feel weird and making sure it was yeah. very clear that <laughs> you're very far from home. Yeah. Your characters struggle to decide how, if at all, they should react to news they receive from earth, which is in, in their minds, 14 years old and millions and millions of miles away. Uh, and, but I think this gets at something deeper though, and it plays out every day in television, on social media. And that's the tension between sort of following the minutia of everyday life. They talk about this politician or that war versus sort of stepping back and, and looking at the, at the bigger picture that extends not just beyond today's news, but beyond our own lives. How do you handle that tension in the novella or, or even for that matter in your own writing life? I have not figured out how to handle it in my own writing life, which is exactly why it's in the novella. Um, I think it's something we all struggle with, right? You know, how much is too much and how little is too little? Um, and I think it's a question nobody's really answered yet. We have the ability to uh, transmit news and to communicate with each other in a more vast capacity than, than ever before. Um, and we are still today very much wrestling with how to handle that. You know, um, I think it's wonderful that I can know what's going on a half a world away. But if you also fall into that trap, right, of getting so stressed out about things that are happening a half a world away or just on the other side of the country that it starts to, you know, uh, eat away at your ability to just, you know, get stuff done in your house, um, you know, in your immediate environment. Um, so with the book, I, I wanted to sort of, you know, take that experience, which is something I do struggle very much with in my own life. Um, and, and, you know, just put it out into space, which is really what I do with everything, just taking me and putting it out into space. Um, because we see them deal with it in both ways, right? You know, they, they either go into it too hard or, or too little. Um, and, and what's, what's the good middle ground? Uh, and that's a tricky question to answer. And it's certainly not one, I've been able to answer myself yet, but then again, I don't know anybody who really has. I mean, I, I do. One does wonder what our reaction to world events would be if, when we turn on the news, it, they said, "Here's what happened 14 years ago," and that's all they told us. You know, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, um, Ariadne and her friends on one particular planet find great joy. But it could be argued that one of the reasons they find such joy on this planet is because the previous planet they visited, um, they found great suffering. Do, do you feel like, whether either in life or in fiction, that, that pain is a necessary balance to pleasure? Can there be true happiness without the memory of misery? I do think you can have happiness without the memory of misery, but I think that the reality of life is nobody's ever really had that opportunity. Um, I... In all of my work, I try very hard to imbue my stories with a sense of hope. 
Um, but hope doesn't necessarily mean a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Um, hope means that you have to acknowledge the tough stuff. So, because otherwise all you're doing is sugarcoating, right? If you just say everything worked out great and it was a lot of fun and they lived happily ever after the end, that's, that's not a book about hope. That's, <laughs> that's a book about burying your head in the sand. Yeah. Um, so I think that hope is something that you have to, um, that can really only exist in the, in the face of, of struggle or at least in, with the experience of struggle, right? If you haven't experienced struggle, then, then there's no reason to hope. Um, but happiness or contentment, no, I mean, you can, I, I don't ascribe to the notion that the only way you can feel those things is if you've previously suffered. Um, so for, for me, the, um, that progression that you're talking about is, is less about, and we're happy here. It's more about the fact that the suffering did end. Right. Um, and that suffering is always temporary and there is always something on the other side. You have a great quote about home when the travelers are on the planet Votum. You write, a home can only exist in a moment, something both found and made, always temporary in the grand scheme of things, but vital all the same. What does home mean to you? Home is family. Home is wherever I am right now and the, the people I have with me there. Um, my experience of that is, you know, I've spent a lot of my life traveling and moving around a lot. And so I don't have the experience of some people have, um, where they can say, you know, I've lived in this town my whole life or my family's been here for six generations or whatever. You know, this is, this is where we are. That's not the case with me. Um, and it's not the case with my family in general. You know, my, my grandparents were immigrants. Uh, my wife is an immigrant, um, and I've, you know, I've lived in two other countries besides the States and I'm in more apartments than I can count. <laughs> um, so, so that, that quote is very much reflective of, of me and my, um, interpretation of home, which is that it is something I, I constantly have to remake and rediscover, um, and something I have to carry with me because if I attach it too much to, um, a house or a place, you know, it's very likely that it'll change down the road. And I've, I've found that, you know, the times in my life where I did dig in a little too hard, it was that much harder to, to leave. Whereas as soon as you realize it's something you can carry, it's something you can keep internally and it's something you can make wherever you go. Um, it makes, it makes, um, being transitory a lot easier. When we spoke in Winston-Salem a few weeks ago, we, we talked about a variety of things, but um, I particularly remember this moment when we sort of bonded over bemoaning the fact that in so many fictional post-apocalyptic visions of the future, whether they're on television or in comic books or in novels, um, we, sh- we see the remaining humans of our race turning against each other with violence rather than coming together with cooperation. If there is a great catastrophe that befalls mankind, what do you see as the realistic post-apocalyptic society? Are we going to are we going to fight it out, or are we going to get the message and, and work together? I think there will be fighting, but I think the majority of folks will work together. That's just in our nature, um, as, as is fighting. I mean, violence is part of our nature too, and we can't deny that. But we are ultimately a social species. We're a cooperative species. And the idea that we would suddenly abandon that in in the face of you know <laughs> um, you know there's no more running water and there's no more electricity oh no let's all go feral it just simply doesn't make sense <laughs> um, you know because the fact of the matter is when we were living without 
about those things, we did just fine. You know, we, we formed, uh, groups and we, you know, we helped each other out and we made it work. You know, cooperation is as much a part of who we are as competition. And, um, I think it just comes down to choice. Honestly, it, it, it comes down to what kind of people we want to be. And if you look at, you know, if you just look around the world, when things happen, you know, natural disasters or, um, you know, wars or, you know, just the, the horrible things that, that occur as, as, you know, part of the world as it is, you find, you always find people who are working to make it better. You always find people who are reaching out and opening their doors and banding together. And so I, I just refuse to believe that, you know, one good meteor strike is all it takes for us to give up, <laughs> to give up that, that, um, that core part of who we are. Well, I mean, I think I agree. I, I, I agree when you look, um, when it seems to me that the more common human reaction when things go horribly wrong is that it brings out the best in us rather than that it brings out the worst in us. And, and we can hope that that's what will happen. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So to end back at the beginning, would it, would it give too much away if I asked you to explain the title of your novella to be taught if fortunate? And before I, I let you explain it, I want the listeners to know that yes, there is a comma in that title as I am reading it. Um, No, it doesn't give too much away at all. So um, the title To Be Taught If Fortunate is taken, it's lifted directly out of the introduction to the Voyager Golden Record. And for people who don't know what the Voyager Golden Record is, uh, the the Voyager probes um, were these wonderful spacecraft launched in the late 70s um, to explore the outer reaches of our solar system and beyond. Uh, They're still out there. They're in interstellar space, still phoning home. And um, they carry the most wonderful cargo, which is uh, a record. And, and the equipment necessary to play it. And um, it is encoded with all sorts of information about, you know, wh- where you can find us in the galaxy. And, and But most, most preciously, I think, it's got recordings of the sounds of Earth. Mm. And that's everything from music to different languages to the sounds of animals to the sounds of machinery to the sound of a heartbeat. Um, it's... You know, it was our, our best effort at, at, you know, cramming as much of the human experience and of the, the experience of being on planet Earth into audio form as we could. And the introduction um, was recorded by the, um, the then Secretary General of the United Nations. And he there's this wonderful bit in there where he says... Um, you know, we are paraphrasing, paraphrasing the beginning bit, but, you know, we go out into the, you know, the, the galaxy now. The direct quote is, um, to teach if we are called upon to be taught if we are fortunate. Oh, fantastic. And, <laughs> and in when I was coming up with this book and thinking about it, um, I, I was trying to sum up, you know, my feelings for the book. I was trying to sum up, you know, what's the big idea I'm trying to get at here. And I went and listened to the golden record because that's the sort of exploration I was trying to put in a bottle with this book. That's the sort of drive that I wanted to capture the, the desire to go out there and learn and that being goal enough, you know, it didn't have to be something you can sell or something you can stick a flag in. Just, we want to learn. And, um, when I heard that, I was like, well, I'll never be able to write anything as eloquent as that. (laughs) Beautiful. And, uh, so I just, you know, like, like all of us do sometimes just, just, uh, copy pasted that and, uh, 
and ran with it. What a great place for it to come from. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into writing and into Becky Chambers. So if you're ready, we will begin the speed round. What word do you love to work into your writing? Uh, Myriad. It's one of my favorite words, Mm. and there's a story behind it that's far too long to explain. (laughs) What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Ooh. Moist. I hate that word. (laughs) That is such a common answer. It's so interesting (laughs) to me. (laughs) Where's your favorite place to write? At home. Uh, I have a nice office here, and I really like to be comfortable. Where could you never write? An airport. Mm. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? All of them. Uh, I I did not get a very good education in grammar. I generally just go with what I think looks right. What was the first book you remember reading? The Hobbit. What are you reading now? I am currently reading... um, a book about beekeeping uh, because I, I keep bees and that means I have far too many books <laughs> on the subject. What book would you like to have written? Um, Lilith's Brood by Octavia Butler. It's three books, but that's okay. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? I'd love to write high fantasy, but I don't think that I have anything new to add to the genre. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That the book made them, that my books made them love science just a little bit more. Hmm. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Becky Chambers, whose book, To Be Taught If Fortunate, is available wherever books are sold. And we might still have a few signed copies at Bookmarks. Becky, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On the next episode, I'll be talking to another Bookmarks Festival author, Angie Cruz, about her novel, Dominicana. Until then... Thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.